Hello and welcome to GMI, Guitar and Music Institute podcast, episode 4. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing the classical guitarist, Philip Thorne, MBE. Really excited about this. It's going to be fantastic to hear a true Scottish classical guitar legend, really, talk about all the people that he's taught, the performances and a look back on the many, many things that he's accomplished here in Scotland and, of course, further afield. If you're listening to this podcast on channels such as iTunes, consider subscribing to it so you'll get the latest podcasts from us. If you do want to get extra material, such as perhaps videos or if there's specific channels of iTunes downloads, then come on over to the GMI website. So, Coming up is an interview with Philip Thorne. Philip, it's fantastic to have you here. Thanks for coming in and talking with us. I should say Philip Thorne MBE, and I know you're not big on that, but I want to talk about that part of it later what MBE means and all the rest of it. To begin with, for many people out there, I just wanted you to maybe say a little about how you started in classical guitar. And fundamentally, I mean, I love classical guitar, but when I was 16 or 17 and getting into guitar, I probably didn't think about it much. What got you into classical guitar? What age did you start? And uh, how did you continue or start out on your journey? Well, I started playing piano from as early as I can remember because my dad was played in, played jazz and dance music and, and such like. I played piano from the, my earliest memories, but my dad bought me a guitar <coughs> and, like everybody else, tried to play tune a day. Uh, Is that the Bert Weedon? Yeah, Bert Weedon, that guy must so, be a millionaire at the time. So, was that the only book that was out there? It's the only one I, c- I can remember, Bobby Shafto and all stuff uh-huh. like that. Was it any good? No. Actually, actually put me off the guitar, so I didn't actually play the guitar. It sat in a corner. So who was Bert Whedon any good as a player? I think he was, yes. Yeah, in his day, but it was. um, They just put his name on it or something. Well, no, I think it was. I I don't think there was any other tutors out there. Uh I discovered you could play chords, Uh and this guy who lived across the road from me started showing me some stuff like Beach Boys and. Chuck Berry, all that kind of stuff, yeah. and um, really got into it. Then got really into electric guitar, and then so we in bands. Oh yeah, then we yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, played in the band when I was fourteen. Wow, they're playing in pubs and such like. At fourteen, yeah, they allowed you to play in pubs. Yes, in the good old days. In the good old days, yeah. So what kind of amplification were you using? Oh, very very Is old Vox? beat up Vox. Yeah, AC thirty. AC thirties. Wow. Then switched to bass. Then. Discovered Jimi Hendrix, and that was it. We played in bands. Played what do you mean that was it? That was it. You were Hendrix. That was the only thing that we were really interested in. Right. It was that big. That for big. You. Pretty cocky about it all. Could rip off all the solos. In those days, you could just change the speed, and you got the the solo down an octave, so you could actually get it note for note. You're talking about the the record players. Yeah, the record so players. You, yeah. you get a forty-five, and you take it, it down to thirty-three, and it goes down an octave. So everything was going great until a music teacher at the local school introduced me to classical guitar music. What age would this be at? I would be about 16, and that was a a revelation for me. 
In what way? Because I could hear quite clearly, I think it was a fugue or the chicane, something like that, and you could hear that there was, how, how can they play the bass and have an independent middle part and then play a melody? And that was it for me. So it was the inspiration of a, of a music teacher. What was classical guitar education like back then? I mean, was there a lot of teachers? Was there a was a was it very laid down and a, 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 a easy path to follow? Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, I was born in Pitlochry, so we went from Pitlochry down to Perth to a, a teacher who was basically a, a Polish guy who played the violin and the guitar was his second instrument. Then, when after I discovered that the the structure of classical music was basically the same. So you, if it's in C major, the shapes are basically the same, but you're not putting down all your fingers. Uh, that's that's a bit simplistic. But once once I got that, that was it. I was I was off. And then I went down to a specialist guitar teacher, a guy called Norman Quinney in Edinburgh, and and that was it. And it it really was um, it was unstructured because the the great books on guitar technique hadn't been really written. Okay. Um, no, Frederick Nord. No, I, I can't recall them. Um, I remember the Saw 20 studies. Uh, oh, I've got those. This is, the, is this the ones that you wrote in a garret in Paris while Napoleon was burning down Europe? He, he wrote a lot of them. <laughs> he, he wrote, uh, they come from, I think it's about six sets, something like that. But Segovia took 20. Funnily enough, the Saw's Sor, name comes way below Segovia's name. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> it is, it is. So basically, that was it, and I, I discovered that you couldn't study classical guitar in Scotland. There was one place, and that was at Edinburgh College of Commerce, and uh, which became Napier. Ah. So that was the only place that was possible in sort of late sixties. It just wasn't an option to go to, down to London, but you couldn't have got in there anyway because you didn't have the musical background or the technical background. Right. So that's okay. Um, before we go to that, if we can try and remember that one, who were who were you listening to? I mean, there must have been people that you were listening to that were inspiring you. Biggest inspiration was Julian Bream. He was always my hero. But in those days, the seventies, there was the beginning of the real classical guitar boom. And remember, John Williams was on Sky. He, he, that was before that. It was before he, this. He was right. on. Um, I can't remember the shows, but. Um, There'll be the two Ronnies and stuff like that. They used the, to have all the great guitar players on them, wouldn't they? The Mark Val Dunnikin it was. Oh, Val Dunnikin. People like that. Yeah. And he came on and he would sit and play pretty hard pieces under pressure. Yes. And just sit there and play tremolo pieces, which, you know, you need, really need to have your head together to play them. I think that the classical guitar was becoming a bigger picture because he was playing on variety shows. On a Saturday night, John Williams would be on playing the Deer Hunter. I know, it, it, it's a, a recurring theme, this, how light entertainment, has, there's just no room for that sort of thing anymore. I, I think that's right. I think the, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge change that's going on. And apart from anything else, Williams, I can't remember if it was one of the um, Monty Python um, sketches, that he was, he was playing and they were all going round him trying to distract them. Right. Uh, you see it on YouTube if you yeah. put it on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and and, and these were, so 
although everybody says he's he's a serious guy, but you know he he had the vision to go on and do it. And at the same time, he was then he went on to do Sky, but before that, he did lots of fusion stuff. This is how these uh, interviews tend to go. There's a, a a loose plan, and then we go all over the place. Are you saying that John Williams' ascension to the sort of superstar status as a classical guitarist wasn't actually you know, set in stone <clears throat> are you saying that Julian Bream was a much more hardcore purist almost Bream, uh, Bream when he performed at, at the heights of his career always gave 100% and so it was, it was visual as well as oral um, Williams just sat down and played and so the, the general opinion was that Bream was expressing more but that wasn't necessarily true Bream was uh, Bream was also breaking new ground you know getting Benjamin Britten to write pieces for him and Michael Tippett and even the Scottish composer Thomas Wilson wrote he wrote um, a piece for Julian Bream which he said was the hardest piece he's ever come across yeah it would be interesting if how much these guys actually looked at how the guitar worked before writing the pieces Um. well I worked with the, Thomas Wilson, the composer, um, many decades later, and the, Bream sat down with him and they talked about what was good and what, what right. would work. But in point of fact, some of the advice actually made it more difficult because you know Bream had said to to Tom, you know, write across the strings, but if you're doing big intervals on the guitar, it just depends what note you're coming from, yes, and where your next lot of notes are. Indeed. So you solve one problem, but then you you cause a, an awful lot more problems. Okay, just to remind people, this is GMI, Guitar Music Institute. I'm Jed Brocky, and I'm interf- interviewing Philip Thorne, classical guitarist extraordinaire. Can, well, can we go back, Philip, to something you were saying? But just before we got on to where you were going to get your education, and I just wondered, was it easy back then to get your hands on good recordings of classical guitarists? No, it, it, it was actually quite hard. I think the first classical guitar recording that I was aware of was um, on the old Saga label, and that was um, Segovia playing the Chacon and stuff like that. Living in Pitlochry, you had to order the, the albums, so you couldn't just go into a shop and buy them. And of course, there was no online back in those days. And there, was, there was absolutely not, and... Um, you had to buy the the album. I think a lot of the Scobia stuff was transcriptions from seventy eight, so they were all done in a one take. So these were I still got some of these recordings. So how how did you find out about recordings? Specialist magazine. There was a classical there was a, a classical music magazine I seem to recall, which actually prompted me into a, a period where I, I did a lot of composing when I when at the last year of school and into first, second year at, at college. But it was all kind of serial, um, so without a tonal bass. Great for the ending scenes of uh, of Psycho. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, in fairness, you know, it was a product of its time. Yeah. And um, So were but, you listening to a lot of Philip Glass, etc.? No, that wasn't available then. You listened to people like Skalkotas, Shostakovich, uh-huh. Stravinsky... Mm-hmm. In fact, the first classical concert I paid to go to was the Bartok String Quartet playing Bartok. 
Right. I did collect Hungaraton, the Hungarian record label, brought out a complete series so you could buy it, the complete Bartok, as you went along. Your education, so so what happened since you didn't have London as a, an opportunity? Went along and auditioned, and there was a guy called Neil Butterworth who was head of music. This is it? At, at what was what was then the, the College of Commerce. Right. That course then went on to be to be included in Napier. So yes. it's, it's it's basically the same, ended up the same place. So that was gave the opportunity to study, and so I studied there. And um, how did you find studying? I found studying the guitar great. I didn't want to play the piano. Piano's my favourite instrument, but I didn't want to play. It's very difficult if you've got nails. I didn't want to sing, and my recollection of college life was don't go in days that you had piano lessons, don't go in days that you had singing lessons. I I really enjoyed the history, I liked the theory, all of that kind of stuff, not any of the others. So from there, Philip, can you just try and outline to people what life was like for a classical musician, and I suppose any musician, but specifically classical musicians through the 70s and I guess the 80s and maybe beyond, was it difficult to get work? Was it a, as difficult as perhaps some people may think now? Mm-hmm. There's just one little bit that to do with my musical education. There was a little twist and turn before it get, got to that bit. And that was um, probably one of the most influential people I've come into contact. It was a guy called John Gaval. He wrote a lot of didactic material and he was um, about the, for the guitar. And he was also the, the guy who appointed the first peripatetic guitar teachers in Britain. Wow. And he came as a lecturer to Murray House, but they didn't have any guitar people there. So one day I got a phone call and they said, would you come in to meet this great guitar teacher? I hadn't heard of him, to be honest. <laughs> um, so <coughs> Always away. Always away. So anyway, I went in and uh, they chatted away and said, you know, would you like to be a, 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 a teacher? I said, well, yeah, a guitar teacher would be good. But I didn't realise what they were talking about was a music teacher. Ah, right. So I did a year with him and I was the only, well, there were three guitarists and they, I was, I, the only person to complete the course was me. They left because they didn't like it. So that, that was a huge influence that just, and I was offered a place there and then I started the next week so that was you started at Murray House Teacher Training College in Edinburgh in Edinburgh right and so I, a course which I thought was about teaching guitar but it ended up it wasn't it was about teaching in a, a much wider sense so I went on to be a trainee music teacher I also met somebody there a singer a guy called Peter McLean and we did concerts together voice and guitar for about 10 years together as well as solo. So that's how it started. And the, the, practically every city had a guitar society. So there was an Edinburgh Guitar Society, Glasgow, Aberdeen, Perth, Fife. And so there were lots of places you could play. Are these societies still open today? No, they're not. So it was of a gener- specific generation? It, it launched the careers of people like probably Scotland's greatest guitarist, a guy called David Russell. And David cut... You know his early career going round guitar societies in here and England and and Ireland and Wales. So there were lots of places to play. There was no shortage. 
were, were these Guitar Society events well attended? Then? Yes, they were. They were. In fact, in Edinburgh, I'm sure the president was Robin Harper. I still see him wandering about. Did he have a colourful scarf? For he anyone does, listening, he, he Robin does. Harper used to be a Green uh, Member of Parliament in the Scottish Parliament, and he was, apart from being a Green activist, he was well known for his colourful scarves. Yeah, but he also was the stalwart of the Classical Guitar Society. Well, there you go. So, I mean, you play probably once a year in each of the places, or maybe twice a year. So you could get basically a tour out of this. Pretty near it, yeah. How long did this golden era last for? Right into the 80s. What changed? What, What happened? I think the audience patterns have changed a lot. You know, you didn't. The, you could get it wouldn't be CDs or LPs then or CDs. It would. It was. It wasn't all that easy to get them. You had to go to a specialist shop to get them. So if you somebody came, generally speaking, you would get I don't know seventy to hundred people just to to a newly established guitarist. That is quite incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. Did that mean that creating recordings and then taking them to sell wasn't such a huge gamble if you were linked into the circuit? In those days, that the, the amount of funding you would need to do a recording would be pretty expensive. Okay, so there was no other way than no, going there, through a there label. Was no, there was no other way. So there was. Don't forget that I think the first reasonable revoxes were. I mean, they were very, very expensive. The, the tapes. You know, a good quality tape machine, um, so that was out of the question. And then you had to edit it, there. and so it, you had to be really signed. Whereas nowadays, well, I it's, think it's better. It's it's just incredible nowadays, isn't it? Young people today, if they become aware of the technology, if they want to be musicians, it's just there, and they can record in their house almost to a level that is almost well unimaginable even twenty five years ago. Well, you can get an app on your phone that you can do 8-track recording and it, you can download it for free. It's quite, quite astonishing. It is astonishing. Change. So uh, I think it's a good thing because all you're going to get is all the one, the... one of the things that disillusioned me about the guitar circuit for a while was that everybody played the same material. And then you find yourself 10 years later, you're still playing this... Not the same programme, but you're still playing Villa Lobos or... Is that what the people wanted to hear? It's what the people wanted to hear. But, you know, you can down, I don't know, go to Bath or go to wherever, down to Cornwall, because there was lots of guitar festivals too. So the summer, you could actually, if you if you were cute, you could spend the summer going round guitar festivals. And in Edinburgh, there used to be one in the summer and one at Easter. Good, uh, a, a good separation. Yeah, you know, so you could, different people doing the same course. So, again, there was a lot of people, there was a lot of opportunities and, you know, as, as a young guitarist then, I had ample opportunities to play. So it was mainly solo work and the occasional duo? It, it was solo and then voice and guitar. How how do you feel um, solo guitar for a, a lot of people who want to do that? They, they find that very difficult because, let's face it, there's no one to blame but yourself if it goes wrong. What advice could you give to people who perhaps have problems in performance when playing, performing solo, be as prepared as possible to separate to separate the mechanics of playing, technique, and above all, 
treat music as a, a as a truly creative activity where you communicate ideas and it's not about you sitting there look at me I'm playing hard stuff look at me I'm not making a mistake because I actually I spent a whole summer once adjudicating at, at guitar competitions and there was there was a guitar competition in Dundee then there was a guitar competition over in Benicassim which in, in Spain and then there was a bath one and they were all within a month and I was sitting thinking you know I'm I just wasted about a month of my life <laughs> because I didn't hear many people actually expressing something and then a little voice said what about you and and then I had to really question what you're actually doing when you plump yourself down and set yourself up to being a great um, or a, even average guitarist. But you could be wasting an hour and a half of somebody's life. And that, that was a bit of a turning point for me. In what sense? Well, you sit and listen to... F- in Spain, there was 56 people played, of which there's always, a, with these international juries, there's a great there's a politics of it all. Okay. So there's maybe six or eight people on the jury. Oh, what um, are the politics of all? <laughs> um, in Spain, they definitely want Spaniards. As a guitarist, we're looking at a different set of criteria. You know, technical things. If you have an orchestral player, they're looking for passion. And they'll accept, for that passion, they'll accept um, what guitarists would find that unacceptable. And so everybody has a everybody has a casting vote. So you cast your vote, and then it comes out completely wrong. And that's why people actually get so upset. They say, well, I'm not having anything more to do with this. Mm-hmm. And that goes on. Really? Oh, yeah. You see, within that, and I know we're diverting slightly away from what we're talking about, but did you see a great difference between the techniques and the expressiveness of guitarists in Spain opposed to, say, in Scotland? <laughs> Spaniards are much where much rougher because they're coming from a, a kind of flamenco tradition whereas in Britain um, we are we are not just Britain but America you know, it depends whether you think the guitar is a percussive instrument or if you think it's a harmonic instrument it's certainly not a string instrument in, in that it, you don't play it with a bow so the closest instrument I think is is really the piano and we've seen this with the uh all these many guitarists now in the sort of contemporary guitar where they're using the guitar as a percussive instrument. Yeah. John Gom and people like that who are, I call it slap and tickle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, to be honest, I, I quite like it. You know, it's... I maybe couldn't last a whole hour and a half. But. No, I, I, I certainly couldn't. Um, but by percussive, I mean that I, I'm talking about the fact that you're actually plucking the string. So at some point when you're playing, and I think that's one of the difficulties with the guitar, that at some point your fingertip is on that string and that string's dead then. There's a whole new world of technique that's beginning to creep in that we haven't really thought about. So after the competitions, did you continue to adjudicate at these competitions? And how how did you get into that anyway? I don't know how I got invited, but I did. And... Basically, what you do is they pay for your flight, you pay, you pay, stay in the hotel, they give you spending money on the day, and you don't get a fee, but you have a really good 10 days. Yeah, sounds, sounds a great way to spend some time. When did Soros happen? Is that a different period of your life? And that was when you were working with Selena Madley. 
Have I said that Midley. right? Midley. You have to have a gigantic ego to, pick, to, to play solo. And you've got to really believe in yourself. By about the mid-90s, well, I had, basically, I, to, to, to be able to play, I used to practice. I used to work during the day and then practice. So I'd practice maybe four hours when I got home or five hours. But by then we had l- little kids. And my wife actually said to me, you know, if you, these kids are going to grow up and they're not going to know who you are. So when you say working through the day, Philip, what were you doing during the day? Well, I was head of music. At no, that was a co- I suppose to call that a leading question because yeah. I knew the answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you were the head of a music school. Music department. A music department. Yeah, and, but I, I, I mean, we had guitar teachers. Mm-hmm. We had violin teachers, but I didn't teach guitar. How did you find that? Did you feel distant from this instrument? No, no. I, I, I like people. I like teaching. Don't forget that it was a music teacher who inspired me to go and, you know, be a music teacher. I was going to be an architect, and if I hadn't gone, a very, very eccentric music teacher who's now unfortunately dead. I mean, he inspired generations of kids, and so that inspired me. Then I met another guy, John Gaval, who again was a great teacher. But the funny thing is, I even feel guilty saying this. I remember going along, and I was playing things like the Lennox Barclay Sonatina and stuff like that, and I I could quite clearly see that I was a better guitarist than him. With the arrogance of youth, I thought, well, you know, I'm much better than you. I should be doing what you're doing. A lot of things, like I, I asked them one day, you know, about phrasing some passaggio bits in a Bach look suite. How would you phrase it? And he said, da-da-da-dum, bullshit. That's not right. 20 years later, I'm thinking... He was right. I thought they listened. I thought they listened. And, uh, because that's Harman Court and all these people. It's, it, it, you know, you play Bach in, in speech rhythms. And that's what he was telling me. So, Soros. Soros. I always wanted to play duets. Duets is a great way. But before that, I actually met a guy called Jimmy Durant, a viola player, he was head of strings, so he was above me at the conservatoire, then the Royal Academy. We got on really well together, and then we played for decades together. So we played as a duo, viola guitar, we added a flute, we added percussion, we added soprano, and this went on for 30 years. So you just slipped in there as an aside that you were teaching at the the conservatoire then called the RSAMD, which is probably, well, it is the premier teaching establishment in Scotland for for music, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. And how long have you taught there? Uh, I started teaching there in 1978. Now remember that there was, you, you, you couldn't study guitar in Scotland apart from at the College of Commerce, which became Napier. I taught at Napier, but then the then principal, David Lumsden, came over to the school I taught in and asked, invited me to go and teach there. Oh, fantastic. You were headhunted. Well, it, <laughs> I've actually never applied for a job in my life. Well, so I, that's he, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> he, he turned up, and believe it or not, the, the guy, he asked if he, he could hear a young guitarist and Mike McGeary, who now teaches at the junior school and was head of instrumental music in Edinburgh, he was the first guitarist who ended up at the Royal Conservatoire. And this was basically 
again, just being in the right place at the right time. A music advisor guy called Andy Kerr, he was in charge of everything. He introduced, he told David Lumsden about me. The rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah, is the rest is history. So it's 1978. So well, I, I, I recently retired from there. And am I right in saying that the put on a special performance of works that you would have had commissioned over the last 30 years? Nearly 40. 40. <laughs> wow, isn't that incredible? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I decided to retire, retire early because, in fact, I taught some of the teachers who were there and I felt it was really my time was over. Pass it, the baton on. Well, to be honest, when I was a young guitarist... I got a lot of good things. I was lucky. And I don't think it's right for me to hold on to things when other people need an opportunity. Well, the, the interesting thing here, Philip, because you're being very modest, in doing the research for this interview, I just countless, countless guita uh, classical guitarists, you came up as their teacher. But not only that, there was other comments on classical guitar forums. And unbelievably... I never found one bad one. <laughs> they were all very complimentary of you as not only a gentleman, but a great teacher and a great player. So I think that stands out like a beacon f from the work that you've carried out. I haven't really... I don't really go on forums, um, but it's really nice to know. I think over the years, the, the, getting back to the, the Celebration concert, I thought that maybe the Celebration concert was because they finally got rid of me, but... I'm like, <laughs> 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 yeah, the pops and were going off behind your back as you walked out. Fireworks. <laughs> no, no, it's not that. It, it's it's a it's a huge compliment, and it's going to be. And there's about six or eight guitarists, and they're all going to play all the pieces that that were special for me, that mm -hmm. were written for me. And pieces that you've obviously performed throughout I, your life. I've performed maybe fifty, a hundred times. Have you recorded these pieces? I have. Um, I don't like a lot of the recordings that, that I did. All these pieces, um, that's another thing I should have said earlier. The BBC promoted guitar a lot. So I maybe did it, I don't know, 40 broadcasts. Why was that? Was there specific gu guitar lovers in places of power? There were just people who believed in the guitar. There was a producer, composer called David Dorward. He wrote, he wrote me a piece for guitar. They were just interested in it and they were also because Edward Maguire John Maxwell Geddes all the Thomas Wilson Stephen Dodgson all these kind of guys they were all wanting to write for the guitar and the BBC wanted to record them and broadcast them quite, quite incredible it is quite incredible it's so would you say that, that you've gone through a golden era in a sense for the exposure of classical guitar yeah I would say I would say yes also the Arts Council were very proactive. Is this the Scottish the Scottish Arts Council? For instance, I, I they're not doing them, but over since about 1988 through to 2005, I, I commissioned five guitar concertos for guitar and orchestra, and some of them were funded from the Arts Council. And you're talking about a lot of money for for a, a guitar and orchestra. Latest one by a young composer writes a lot of film music, plays in a band called Elkin as well. He wrote me a guitar concerto. So what's his name? Um, Keith Murphy. He was he was a guitarist at the then Academy uh -huh. and I taught him at the school I used to teach with the conductor of the Edinburgh Symphony Orchestra. It was Alistair Mitchell. We got funding. I got funding and Alistair got funding. 
and we managed to get enough to commission a piece for guitar and symphony orchestra. Unfortunately, we only ever played it once. Isn't that the way it used to always be in the in the good old days? Pretty, pretty near it, pretty near it. But funnily enough, the, there's a lot of interest now in the, the music of Thomas Wilson, his guitar concerto, which I played probably about, I don't know, eight times, something like that. I think that, that could well end up being the classic one. You are listening to GMI. My name is Jed Brokey and I'm in conversation with classical guitar player Philip Thorne MBE. I mention this MBE thing, Philip, because these podcasts do go all around the world and for some people they may not know what MBE is. Could you explain what that is and how you get one? It's a member of the British Empire. I thought, didn't think Britain had an empire anymore. Well, you, you do and you get this medal and this big poster kind of thing that you, you put up in your wall. It doesn't. It, it was very nice. It was for services to music education. So it, it was very nice. When it came, I thought some of the guys at work were pulling my leg and had sent me a spoof. Yeah, you <laughs> I would. I didn't actually you? believe it. <laughs> but it turned out to be true. Yeah. So it was great. Went to Holyrood Palace, met the Queen. What did she say to you? They always mumble a few words and everyone wonders. I said, do you know a Scottish guitarist called Jed Brocky? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, she definitely didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, what, did you remember what she said Yeah, she just said she, Well some, done, some, now somebody, get out of here. Somebody behind her was telling her. Oh, really? Yeah, the guy who was behind her. Uh, right, he so was uh, quietly into her ear. Quietly into her ear. She was really, really nice, and we got an invitation to go to the garden party, but we didn't go to that. We went home and had a really good party. Nice one. And a barbecue. Now, has it opened up any other doors, having an MBE? Does it make any difference? Uh, no. None at all? None at all. None, none, none that I can... I've come across... There's one school of thought is that you're going to be pestered with women, but that's definitely not true. It's not true. That is what an MBE is, and it's incredible that we're actually speaking with someone who's got one who isn't just a businessman that's enriched himself or a politician, but actually someone who's given a lot to the world in terms of music and specifically to Scotland in terms of classical guitar. So I guess at this point, Philip, I would just, as we're heading towards the end of this interview... I want to talk about the guitars you have. Now, I know you've got quite a few guitars and probably quite expensive guitars by anyone's reckoning. The question I would like to know about the guitars you choose is there are many, many great guitar builders out there. Why did you choose, and you can name, if you could, some of the guitars you've chosen for to be specifically built for you, why did you go to those people? What what was the difference for you? The very first guitar, proper concert guitar I was a Contreras a Spanish guitar and then I bought a Romanilis which was one of the ones that were built for Breen it got broken coming back from the States on the plane Freddie Laker the oh good old Freddie and um, well what did you get for get, expect for an eight dollar ticket well it was it was quite difficult it, it, actually that was over to America for the first performance of Stephen Dodgson's piece that he wrote for me and him and I were invited over to America So um, where were you actually playing this? Taft Foundation of America Conference That sounds quite incredible In Connecticut, Hartford Right The downside was the guitar got broken and it was deemed to be irreparable and then I started working I bought another few guitars started working I tend to work with a single maker but for a long time to develop the guitars 
So I played um, guitars by an English guy called Edward Bryn Jones, kind of Welsh as well. And that went on for about 10 years. Then another English guy called David Rouse had about six guitars from him. And then another guy called Michael G, who I've been playing his guitars for about 15 years. So in relation to Kenny G? No. No, I just want to clarify that uh, for our uh, listeners. My, my, Michael, Michael is he's a he's a world class maker, and I've been working with him. We're close friends as well, and at the moment, um, I've probably had about seven or eight of his guitars. He makes guitars with a laminated top; they're not traditional. The last guitar I had was a traditional top, but now I'm having a little bit of problems with my hands. I want a smaller guitar, and he's building me one at the moment, which I should get before the summer fantastic any notable uh, well let's be honest you said I think before the interview started that there's a Scottish guitar maker of note that you... yeah I mean I've always looked out for a, a Scottish guitar I always wanted to play when I started off I couldn't find any music that was written by Scottish composers and I didn't see any point in you know if you come from Scotland you should play some music from Scotland if you come from I don't know Belgium. Belgium, play some Belgian, you know, yes. Dutch music, whatever. So I deliberately w- went out of my way to get music like that. Not only new music, but music from the past too. But I always wanted to play a guitar by a Scottish composer. But for whatever reason, there are some very good makers up here, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, I was involved maybe with well, with other other luthiers, which... And, and as I say, if, if you start playing them, you need to evaluate the guitars, you need to give them feedback, you need to tell them what, what you think the strengths are, what, what could be better, etc., etc. So for, what, what, for whatever reason, I never really got around to doing that. But over the last couple of years, a young guy called Pete Beer, um, he lives over Danunway, and he's ma- making guitars that are really, really interesting. Um, guitars that are... Quite a distinctive voice, harp back to instruments of the early 20th century, housers, guitars like that. So these are um, very light instruments, and it's just ironic. I'm getting to the end of my career, and here comes along a guy I, w- I would definitely have played his guitars right from the be- beginning if I had come across them. How long does it take from origin, uh, from saying to the guitar builder, I want you to build my, uh, a guitar for me? What is the, the waiting period? I think it depends. I mean, I've been waiting for a new guitar for Michael G since nine, it's 2012. So that's, that, what's that, four years? Over. Mm. And I would be top of the, if I wanted one, he would do it. But he can't because he, the, just the lists are too, too much. And he's also changed um, house and everything else. So, yeah, I, 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 somebody like me or you, if you wanted, you know, a professional player, you wanted a guitar, you would get them quicker than most other people want. You're listening to GMI, Guitar Music Institute. I'm Jed Brockie, and I'm in discussion with Philip Thorne as we come to the end, close to the end of this, this talk about Philip's life and work. Philip, I just wonder if you could maybe give your feelings on two areas. One is on the way that the classical guitar is taught and how that's developing, and finally on the opportunities and challenges that young guitarists have who are coming into the workplace today. I think teaching the guitar is one of the most difficult things of all, because there's so many complications. 
there's so many different places you can play the note. I mean, I've been guilty of it in the past as part of the associated boards. I, I've written some Can you just explain what the associated board is? The associated board is, board is um, all the royal schools of music in Britain, and they have a set of grade exams, one to eight, and diploma. As, as a representative of the Royal Scottish Academy of Music, I was invited to do the complete syllabus myself and the scales and everything else. And to be honest, I didn't really have a clue. I, I, I mean, I, I hadn't taught a beginner for whatever. <laughs> so did you go back to your original training yourself? No. I, I went through all the music that was possible. At that time, there was a group called EGTA, the European Guitar Teachers Association, and they were, they were saying that the way the guitar's taught is completely wrong. So before Enter came and started to produce single line pieces, the guitar, what would be grade one, the beginner, absolute beginners, the only material there was for gifted adults. Who, dis- who decided from that company or organisation that the guitar was being taught wrong? The assembled guitar teachers... And I, I was part of that as well. It was quite clear. I also worked for a time with the HMI, who inspect music in schools. For just so for a, a Her Majesty's yes, Inspectors. Yeah. It was quite clear if you looked at a grade one flute and a grade one guitar. Guitar was incredibly more advanced. And even a grade one piano and a grade one guitar. So this would be about 15, 20 years ago. So it was quite clear that there was something very, very wrong. But there wasn't the material around. And EGTA started producing material. They sent me the material. I saw that it made sense. So these early syllabuses that I did started to have these single line pieces for the early grades. Is EGTA still in existence? It does, yeah. Yeah. And they still keep it. Do they keep an eye on what is being produced or helped? They, 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 they produce a lot of helpful stuff. They you know, grade reasonable. Well, don't put, take the reasonable out. Editions of the Bach lute suites that don't have a million extra bass notes. Graded classical, romantic, baroque books, and above all, they constructed a whole load of solos. So you would have solos that would restrict the use of notes together. How many frets you had to stretch. I think the standard of guitar teaching has got a lot better, but it, it, it hasn't actually solved the problem because the problems are that on the guitar, the fact is, unless you're playing open strings, one right-hand finger and one left-hand finger are generally on the same string at the one time. Now, that kind of coordination has huge implications. I, To be honest, I, I started teaching at the City of Edinburgh Music School a few years ago. I thought I would be able to solve it in an instant, but it's not. It's far more complex than you would think. And what could be done about this then? I mean, I was under the impression that there's this long tradition of guitar playing in in the classical field that had this sort of like the violin, you know, hundreds of years of thought behind the actual processes of learning. The trouble is that the instruments up until Torres, the second half of the, the 19th century, these guitars were completely different instruments. They're much smaller. The string length is smaller. The necks are smaller. You use your thumb coming round the back of the neck to play in bass strings. You try and put that onto a modern day guitar and there are a great many difficulties. So yeah, the guitar goes back to um, about the time of the 40 piano really. The birth of the classical guitar was um, when it had its sixth string on. That's, you know, what, 1790, 1780, maybe a bit earlier, but that rough kind of period there. 
So it doesn't go back centuries, and that material that was written was was written for gifted amateurs. It wasn't, it wasn't written for kids. And there are still huge differences in the way the guitar is taught, and haven't haven't really been solved. There's a lot more material coming out now. So do you feel that the the future is brighter in terms of that than than perhaps has been in the past? I still think there are a lot of things to be the whole technical thing to do with scales needs to be thought out at the moment we've got kids doing complex and playing in I don't know sixths and tenths playing chromatic um, not chromatic melodic minor scales which don't make sense well in theory it makes sense but in point of fact you'll never come across it in a piece of music so it's it's to I suppose people like me who 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 have taught at many levels to start having a, a close think about what happens in these early stages. I thought, to be honest, I could just go along, and because I'd thought about it and I'd, um, you know, I'd taught a very high level, I thought I'd be able to solve this, but I haven't. Okay, just finally, uh, the challenges for finding work as as a, a classical guitarist today. We talked earlier about your career, how guitar societies in the 70s and the 80s were prolific all across the UK and probably perhaps in other countries as well. The amount of guitar competitions and all the rest of it that was out there. What is the scenario like for young, talented, eager and up and up guitarists, classical guitarists in today's world? I think it's difficult for them now. But I think there's a, there's a difference also going on socially and who goes to hear concerts. I mean, I'm guilty myself. Sometimes if I get home at night, the last thing I want to do is to go out and physically go to a concert. And you, you've got to be in the right zone. So I think that's a difficult one. I think the, there's the music societies, local music societies, that's still open. Unfortunately, the guitar societies um, have gone, or largely gone. Um, so I think it's very difficult for young young players just now. And I don't think there's... There's particularly this, the income, free income for people to go to lots of concerts, and certainly it's difficult when you put on your own concerts. For instance, if you play in the Edinburgh Fringe, you've you've got a huge financial risk. How does the internet factor into classical guitar? Are people embracing it? The most successful people in terms of performers are the ones who cottoned on very quickly that YouTube was free. Advertising. The trouble is, obviously, there there are there's a lot of really good things in YouTube, but there's also a lot of iffy stuff, you know, from people who think they can play a Kirkcaldy study, but they can't really play it. Well, what is the outlook then? Is it a more for guitarists coming through? Is it maybe less performance, more teaching, workshops? Unless you're incredibly gifted and perhaps a little lucky, you are going to be looking at a portfolio income. Last year and the year before, I did the teaching musician modules at the conservatoire. These were a in series Glasgow. in Glasgow. These were a series of lectures about teaching, and they were making the point that nowadays it is a portfolio. You can't expect to be just to do nothing but performing. That was never realistic anyway. It was only for one or two people per generation, really. Private teaching, some performing. Certainly, as far as guitar. Cons- Concerned, get involved in chamber music, 
get involved with guitar ensembles, all that kind of thing. But they definitely, that's the phrase they use, portfolio, teaching, uh, professional portfolio. But in, in saying that, I, I don't know anybody who, who just performed, maybe Bremen Williams. But they would probably have taught it in some capacity capacity at some time, maybe not a steady job, but well, they'd have done workshops or master classes. They would, they would have. They would have, but I don't think they were necessarily part of our financial no, portfolio. Yeah, yeah. But being realistic, I mean, we, we can knock ourselves as guitarists, but if you were to think how many, if you were to take all the people who study piano, how many of them would be going on to do a performer, to be a performer? Not very many. Incredibly few, in fact. If, if, yeah. There, there is a Scottish guy, Stephen Osborne, who's a fantastic player, a world-class player, uh, I heard him do a master class and exceptional. So you get people like that coming along, but that's not the norm. Well, Philip, I think we are more or less at the end of the interview. There was a question that I, I kind of should have asked you in the the middle, which was, uh, what is your favourite period of classical guitar music? My 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 own musical taste as a player. I want to play music of today. I want to play music by living composers, and I want to play the music of the composers that I've been associated with. Definitely want to play them. That's an incredibly powerful answer. It's about a living thing. It's about a living thing, yeah. That's what I... I mean, throughout anybody's playing career on guitar, you're going to play a lot of Vila Lobos. You're going to play a lot of Saw. I'm fascinated by a lot of the Vivuela repertoire, very early type of guitar. I recently discovered on the internet that he did about 20, um, there are 24 pieces for two vihuelas. And it, it, absolutely fascinating. And these were, they had no fixed pitch so you tuned it from a first string. So one vihuela would play a fifth higher. So you would get the these were basically um, transcriptions of polyphonic music. So it would give you a huge range. Uh, but it's very difficult to play that kind of music today. So that that fascinates me. Repertoire, most music I listen to, I, I listen to Beethoven, mostly. I, I love Beethoven, Schubert. I sometimes decide I'm going to listen to the complete Shostakovich symphonies. Quite often do that. Not so much Bartok these days, but because my wife doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, on that note, on that bombshell... I just want to thank you, Philip, for taking the time to come and speak with me and for GMI's podcast. It's been fantastic listening to just to hear someone who has been there and has done it and has had a big, massive effect, not just on Scottish guitar and music, but a much wider field than that. But certainly, is, I think, in 50, 60 years' time, if I can say this, when people look back, they will see you as an incredibly important figurehead in the, uh, it seems, a burgeoning classical guitar scene in Scotland from what was a rather arid desert in the past. Somebody said to, that I was a godfather of Scottish guitar. Godfather. <laughs> I thought it was quite funny. But I have got an incredible amount of people and on the basis that I'll, I want them all to be better than me. Thank you very much. So it's from me... Jed Brocky, it's goodbye and it's from Philip Thorne. Goodbye. <laughs> Catch up on the next podcast which will be coming soon. Thanks for listening.